It's summer, 1637, not long after Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II had died, and the Thirty Years' War was nearing its third decade. And in a quiet and ancient forest in England, King Charles I is hunting. The king is eight years into his personal rule of England. He had dismissed Parliament in 1629 over our now familiar issues of religious liberties and dynastic tax revenue, and he had simply declined to call them back. And though this created domestic angst among the parliamentary class and created problems of raising enough royal revenue, as Parliament's consent was necessary to raise new taxes, things were relatively stable. Charles had more or less kept England out of direct involvement in the Continental War, now rounding its 20th year, and without major military expenditure, he could basically keep his regime afloat by dredging up ever more obscure feudal dues and levies. He was happily married to his Catholic wife, Henrietta Maria. He had four, soon-to-be-five children, including two viable male heirs. And he didn't have this damn parliament bitching at him all the time over the damn tonnage and poundage tax. Uh, Tonnage and poundage, folks. We've got the tons, we've got the pounds, we've got to put them together and get a tax. you got to do it. So Charles liked to hunt. His rule had always been on a bit of shaky ground. He had never been anyone's preferred leader. He had never had the confidence of a firstborn king. So for him, like his father, James I, hunting offered a real realm over which his dominion was unquestionable. The fresh kill of a stag bred from the same stock in the same forest by his predecessors, Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, gave him connections to his past. It was a simple and more direct pursuit than dealing with his subjects or royal court. Among all the recreations that kings engaged in, from tennis to balls, they called it, to pretending not to be annoyed at their jesters, hunting was the most richly symbolic. The hunt represented the monarch's claim to sovereignty, his God-bestowed power over life and death. By the 17th century, few kings in Europe led troops into battle anymore, Gustavus Adolphus being a notable exception, who also proved why (laughs) they don't do that. So the performance of martial vigor, that physical and mental acumen of lethality, was mostly contained to the hunting ground. Charles hunted much as his father had, and the Tudor kings who came before him, and in the chase he found and performed his royal authority. The breath of horses, the twang of arrows, the rhythm of the forest, God's will consecrated in blood. But beyond the edges of the king's wood, in port cities and market towns, and above all, in the teeming districts of London, where the stags and foxes had been driven out long ago, new rituals of authority were being performed by people who did not live at the languid pace of nature, but at the frenzied beat of the market. They were valorizing concepts more abstract and fungible than a man on a horse, and they were making a country that Charles would never be able to recognize. But Charles did have to make some decisions. And he's about to make a single decision that will lead to a cascade of unintended consequences that will eventually cost him his life. In an attempt to secure power, he will try to purify his kingdom's church. And as we've already seen, this will come with a backlash, starting with the throne prayer stool of an angry market wife and ending with the swift swing of an executioner's axe. So we've talked about how the War of the Roses fought as English control of French territory began to wane, 
decimated the upper ranks of the English nobility and allowed Henry Tudor, an upstart Welsh lord with a tenuous claim to the throne, with the ability to depose Richard III with a small army of mercenaries. Henry VII, as he then styled himself, ruled over a troubled and uneasy land. He faced multiple rebellions and challenges to his reign. Henry secured his dynasty domestically by creating a new and efficient taxation system that increased the obligations of the nobility, as well as empowering justices of the peace to adjudicate legal matters throughout the country. These officials enforced the law on behalf of the king and owed their status to him alone. Henry also centralized authority in London. These efforts all had the effect of claiming for the Tudor dynasty powers that were still firmly in the hands of the landed nobility elsewhere in Europe. Like the Habsburgs had upon their ascendancy, Henry secured his dynasty through strategic marriages. His daughter Mary wed to the king of France. His first son and heir Arthur, then after Arthur's death, his second son Henry, were married to Catherine of Aragon, daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, the unifiers of Spain. He also sought to break the so-called old alliance between France and Scotland by wedding his daughter Margaret to the Scottish king James IV. Mary came back to England after the death of her husband, but the latter two matches would have massive repercussions for English, European, and world history. Henry's second son, the uncreatively named Henry VIII. It's kind of funny that, the, we, that England never got another King Arthur. You'd they think almost that, did. Yes. They got so close to having an a, a actual uh, in-the-records King Arthur, but he fucking they, he, they can't, he really can't do it. They just the, You had to have the spare because those heirs, they would pop just yes. at a moment's notice. So Henry VIII ascends to the throne in 1509 at the age of 17. His reign was pretty eventful. You probably know the gist. Spent 20 years trying to sile a male heir with Catherine while also resisting the Reformation tide in word and deed. The Pope declared Henry defender of the faith for a tract he came to authorship of that rejected Luther's critique of the church. But eventually, he got sprung on Anne Boleyn. You know the rest. Pushed forward by reform-minded counselors, Henry declared himself head of the church in England in order to annul his marriage to Catherine. It was not a divorce he was seeking. He was mar- seeking an annulment on the legal grounds that because he had been ma- she had been first married to his brother Arthur, his ma- Henry's marriage to her was illegitimate. And yes. There was biblical, uh, t- there's scriptural evidence to support that. There's mm-hmm. parts of the Bible where you're not supposed to marry your brother's wife. And it ended up coming down to a question of, of whether they had ever consummated the marriage. And because they had no heir, there was no real proof. Exactly. And it became a the subject of the high courts of England was this specific question. Has the king fucked? Yes. Uh, history's so cool. It's amazing. <laughs> but unlike those German princes who embraced Luther's vision of Christianity, Henry was a king in full and had no use for the doctrinal innovations of the Continental Reformation. So Henry's church mostly held on to the Catholic sacraments and doctrine. The most dramatic and consequential element of his takeover of the church was his seizure of ecclesiastical lands and monastic orders. This action, like his father's monopolization of judicial authority, concentrated more wealth and power in the royal household at the expense of the greater aristocracy, whose second and third sons held so many lucrative church offices. Uh, it's hard to understate just how consequential the transfer of monastic lands to royal lands were, and then the selling of those lands back down to the landed gentry. In fact, there was just the other month a uh, study, I believe a Harvard study, that looked at areas in England where monastic lands were seized and redistributed in the 16th century were three times as likely to have mills on them and be three times more productive in the 19th century because those lands went directly to the kind of upwardly mobile 
bourgeois gentry who would be then developing them into profit centers centuries on. It's no other Reformation dynasty gets their hands on this much yes. land and the uh, political authority that flow from that land. Mm-hmm. Now, Henry's easy to make fun of. The big fat party animal who founded a church just to get laid. It seems absurd that such massively consequential acts have such rude and personal motives. But to look at the world through Henry's eyes is to understand how his obsession with producing an heir reflected the subjectively compelling motivation of an earnest sovereign. The world that Henry Tudor lived in spoke to him in a constant voice, felt by every one of his senses, you are England. Every Englishman from the highest lord to the lowest crofter was contained in the godly authority of his person. That voice also told him, you are a Tudor, the latest in a line of heroes that stretch back to Arthur. Of course, not really, but yes. if you've got the sword, you are, uh, you are heir to the tradition. Right. But England and the Tudor line were both precarious concepts. England, economic backwater, perched between the great powers of Habsburg Spain and Valois France, vulnerable to attack by their belligerent Scots northern neighbors, always in danger of being swallowed up. Henry himself was only the second tutor, his father having taken the country with a ragtag army he got off Fiverr, (laughs) partly because nobody else really bothered with England. (laughs) Uh, His family having married married into it, as Mm -hmm. they say in No Country for Old Men, Uh, because his father was married to the uh, old queen's sister. Right. Henry VII was the first king since William of Normandy to take the throne through conquest. There were families in England with closer blood ties to the old king than Henry's, and they had many friends and titles between Mm -hmm. them. Henry's death without male issue would be the end of the Tudor dynasty, and with its strongest champions departed, the end of England. Also, he was fully sprung on Anne Boleyn, who was a certified (laughs) baddie. There's no way you can deny it. He had, she, she, she got, she she had the sauce. She got him. Too bad she couldn't do the job either. Yes. But like the part of the reason she got him is because he, he was convinced that this would be the solution to every bad thing he felt. Yes. Which he put down to, I don't have a fucking heir yet. Yes. Even though, of course, plenty of other reasons to be miserable. <laughs> so when Henry VIII finally died in 1547, having annulled two marriages and ended two more with executions, he had successfully sired one living son, Edward, by his third wife, Jane Seymour, who died shortly after giving birth. Edward's brief reign saw a crop of energetic Protestant advisors led by the king's uncle, the Duke of Somerset, push through the first real reformation of church practices in England. They abolished clerical celibacy. They ended the mass. They introduced English language services. Uh, They also encouraged a culture of enthusiastic iconoclasm, removing stained glass and relics that had survived through Henry's reign. Reading about this era, the half who are the reforming side, the godly, they hate the stained glass. Oh, God, they hate the stained glass so much. They're constantly. Every time they see it. They're just, like, they just got smashed. Oh, they get so triggered. That's yes. the only word for it. <laughs> it is like, it is like a, uh, it's like an electric stove. Yes. <laughs> so Edward's brief tenure as king was filled with unrest, with religious and secular motives sparking multiple rebellions. Because there's still a lot of native Catholic sentiment in right. the countryside and, and even more in the nobility uh, that they and have then, to contend with. And then even more in the other two kingdoms ireland yes, and scotland yes now the experiments ended when edward died at the age of 15 now the catholic peerage which was still numerous as we say and powerful gathered around the figure of mary henry's daughter from his first marriage to catherine mm-hmm. and installed her as queen in 1553 the duke of somerset was executed for treason and mary attempted a ruthless counter-reformation burning numerous reforming churchmen and laity including the former archbishop of canterbury thomas cramner for heresy 
But in exchange for this crackdown, Mary recognized as permanent the alienation of church lands. Because let's not go nuts here. What really matters? Yes. What's like, this ball game about? It's just like the Protestant reformers in Germany at the beginning. It's funny that your sincere b- godly beliefs really only go as far as like, well, but can I have this land? Exactly. Yes. It's like, we'll, we will accept a Catholic sovereign, yeah, but not at the cost of our enlarged status. Yes. In 1554, over the objections of many in court, she married her Habsburg cousin, Philip, mm-hmm. the, char- the, the son of Charles V, who would become Philip II, King of Spain. Yes. A militantly Catholic England allied with the Habsburg dynasty is a tantalizing counterfactual, uh, and it does remind you of how contingent the great sweep of history could be. But it, all of this possibility, which could have happened, uh, was thwarted by Mary's death from stomach cancer in 1558 after a reign of only five years, during which she had furiously tried to get pregnant by Philip and ended up with a weird phantom pregnancy. Yeah, a psychosomatic pregnancy, yes. which caused great ripples of fear through uh, the Protestant community of, of England at the uh, this very possible contingent, a Habsburg monarch of England. I think that at the very least, you get a, a serious revolt against Mary's rule. Now, whether yeah. that leads to the Spanish invading and taking over, which they do anyway, which they attempt to do, do under Elizabeth, yes. if they do it earlier in alliance with the, the actual monarch? Queen yeah. of England, yes. maybe things go differently. Who knows? Uh, it'd be funny if they spoke Spanish in London. Oh, right my now. goodness. Yes. They would probably know how to spell uh, pronounce burrito. <laughs> I'd like a burrito, please. <laughs> so this left Elizabeth, Henry's only remaining uh, child, Henry's daughter with Anne Boleyn, mm-hmm. uh, as the hope of the by now highly motivated Protestant nobility. Elizabeth Reign was long and successful. Sure, her former brother-in-law tried to invade England with a giant naval fleet, but the divine wind showed England her favor. Elizabeth finally completed the process of reforming the English church, creating a hybrid beast that incorporated reformed notions of a gospel-reading laity with a formal structure of ecclesiastical offices fully under royal control. This tenuous arrangement left both insurgent Calvinists and recusant Catholics alienated and would come under intense pressure after Elizabeth's death. Since the Virgin Queen died without issue, the crown would pass outside the realm to Elizabeth's Scottish relations. So the founding of the Anglican Church and the solidifying it under Elizabeth is happening basically at the same around the same time, you know, about a decade or so after the Peace of Augsburg. Yes. Where they're trying to do basically the same thing in Germany, creating a settlement that will create a, a compromise middle that excludes both extremes, either the extreme recatholization party or the Calvinists. Yes. And results in the same exact conflicts a century later. The Anglican Church retains many of the, as Matt said, formal structures of Catholicism, uh, while, again, uh, addressing the most conservative edges of the Protestant uh, Reformation, as, as Matt said, a scripture-reading laity. You know? yes. So in this form of compromise, we will see these exact same problems that happen in Germany happen in England. Yeah. And it's a tantalizing prospect to think, well, what if Henry had just gone Lutheran earlier? What if he had gone Lutheran with the first tide? And one of the big reasons he didn't and held on to his Catholic uh, superstitions, really, which they are at that level of power, was that Luther would not recognize his divorce uh, as correct. He was basically shopping throughout mm-hmm. Europe 
for some uh, some religious authority yeah. who would validate his argument, his legal argument for why his uh, marriage wasn't recognized. The, the Pope, who was in the thrall of the Habsburgs, wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody else had any uh, uh, reason to. Luther could have done it, but Luther fucking hated divorce, mm-hmm. and he would not acknowledge Henry's claim. He hated divorce so much that when Philip of Hesse, remember him, yes. one of the very first and most enthusiastic uh, uh uh, princes to convert to Lutheranism. Right. Uh, the guy who back roll, bankrolled a whole lot of the Reformation. Uh, he was in love with his mistress, mm-hmm. and he, of course, was you know sick of cheating on his wife, and so he kind of sounded out if Luther would uh, would support him in a hey, divorce. When you crack open the Bible in there, maybe maybe it says something about divorce. Maybe there's there's something here. Work with me here, Luther. Yep. And Luther's like, no, thank you. And instead. Philip of Hesse says, well, what if I marry her also? And Luther <laughs> says, well, I don't like bigamy, but it's better than divorce. And though he doesn't go to the wedding, Philip of Melanchthon does <laughs> and puts his, his official stamp on this guy's bigamous marriage. And it became a huge propaganda W, one of the few that the Catholics got during this early Reformation. Like, look, look, dudes, yes. why are they doing this? Yes. They want to become barbarous Turks. That's why they <laughs> want to get overthrow the, the church. But this is, again, Luther, he couldn't fucking move off of his peg. It didn't matter if it was politically expedient to do so. And so they lost England until it's a completely different geogra- uh, geopolitical situation. I'll also just take this moment because we're going to be saying using the words Episcopalian and yes. Presbyterian a lot that we should define them just so you have it in your head. Episcopalian refers to a system of appointed bishops. Yes. And it is the top down order of a of the high Anglicanism in which it will be the uh, the state church and the dynastic control of the church's policy to appoint bishops who oversee the church from a top down level. Presbyterianism is a congregational organized church in which leadership is elected from the bottom up. It is broadly the Calvinist Lutheran schism. Yes. How, as it plays out later and in England. Yes. The English church becomes this royally controlled structure, and that is because of the power, at the end of the day, the power of the monarchy. In Scotland, where the king is much weaker, you have a, uh, a different uh, situation where the revolt against that is always occurring mm-hmm. against royal imposition of authority uh, in the north is able to coalesce early around this radical church and the Calvinist uh, uh, Bolsheviks basically <laughs> of uh, Scotland are able to push them forward very rapidly, but that's because they were pushing against a much uh, weaker opponent. Right. Uh, in England, the monarch was able to dominate and oppose their version of, uh, of pre- Protestantism onto England. But now we're getting a situation where the king of Scotland, mm-hmm. who, who ruled over this, trans, this violent transition because the, what, they do still have a formal uh, church in Scotland mm-hmm. that is led by the king. Because, and they still have bishops because as the king told the Scottish church leaders from the Kirk, they call it, which yes. is the assemblage of, of uh, presbyteries, mm-hmm. he said, uh, no bishops, no king. Right. It's like, if, we're, if I cannot appoint a bishop, then I am not a sovereign. And so they still had that structure. But the uh, political power and organization of the uh, and and this is crucial public support of the Presbyterian Church is much broader in Scotland. Right, you're you're connecting the interests of the rural landowners and the urban merchants uh, and even small farmers. Like they're all in alliance against the king uh, with this more uh, p- this purer church that is also uh, manifests the political opposition to the king. To, to drill that all down, to keep in mind, Episcopalianism means 
usually royalists. Yes. Uh, Presbyterianism usually means a parliament. mode, but parliamentarians. Parliament versus king is going to come down to yeah. Presbyterianism and its English versions. Yes. It's not technically the same thing in England. And the, the high church plus Catholics. Right. Elizabeth dies in 1603, and the crown of England passes to her first cousin, twice removed, King James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I of England. He's often styled King James I of England, the VI of Scotland. I'm going to call him James I throughout all yeah, this. Yeah, let's it's just say two, two, two numbers, two, way too much. This unifies the Scottish and English crown under his person, and he styled himself uh, as the King of Great Britain. Though both the countries resisted the Union and remained largely functionally and bureaucratically independent from one another, James had been baptized a Catholic, raised in Calvinist Scotland, and now found himself as the head of the Anglican Church of England. So his personal relationship to all these institutions is complicated to say the least. Though James's will to unite his lands under his personal theory of absolutist monarchy led him to embrace Anglicanism, which placed the king at the head of the church. With, of course, some exceptions and idiosyncrasies we'll get into later because this can never be super straightforward. Of course not. Yes. And then there's also Ireland. The Tudors under Henry VIII and Elizabeth I had led an aggressive campaign of conquest and pacification of Ireland, with Henry VIII gaining submission of the local lords and getting made King of Ireland in 1542. Under Elizabeth and James, the English steadily colonized Ireland through their system of plantations, confiscating lands from the Catholics and old Irish families and transferring them to the largely Presbyterian Scots and Anglican English. The largest of these plantations would be set up in and around the county of Ulster, which is, wouldn't you know it, where the Northern Ireland UK part is still today. Over the first half of the 17th century, tens of thousands of English and Scottish would be resettled in Ireland and became the core of the English ruling class there. Uh, it's interesting. The uh, north of Ireland, which is now the quote-unquote Protestant part, although the, uh, I think the, the demographics have officially switched or they're about to, to a Catholic majority in the north. Pretty close. <laughs> it's, it's almost happening. Uh, it, it, before the plantation, it was considered the most Irish part of Ireland, mm-hmm. the, most, uh, the de- most densely resistant uh, to uh, colonialism, part of Ireland. And that is in part the dynamic that creates the plantation is lands are confiscated for rebellion mm-hmm. and then given to uh, absentee owners and, uh, and small-holding yeomen from uh, the other islands. Right. So the plantations of Ireland, with their colonial relationship between owners and tenants, were the first places in the British Isles to systematically implement production-maximizing agricultural practices that would eventually transform English farming. But at a cost... While England and Scotland reformed their churches in the 16th century, the native Irish, from lord to peasant, associated religious innovations with their foreign overlords and deepened their commitment to the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the Reformation had taken on a ferocious turn, and, a, and the Scottish Presbyterian Kirk chafed under James's imposition of episcopacy. He's like, oh, whoa, we're really not liking these fucking bishops, because, but as he assisted, no bishops, no king. They accepted it, but through gritted teeth. The king appointed bishops, but they commanded arrestive membership mm-hmm. who organized themselves into congregations, communities of believers that also doubled as a social power base of landowners and merchants. The dynasties of early modern Europe were all composite monarchies to one degree or another, but few matched the cultural fragmentation of the Stuart Triple Monarchy. 
three crowns, three religions, mm-hmm. Catholicism in Ireland, the Presbyterian Kirk in Scotland, and in England, Anglicanism, splitting the difference between the other two and satisfying no one, including all of their subjects right. in the process. So, as the crisis and ferment of the 17th century commenced, James presided over three distinct polities with their own elites and religious structures. His reluctance to fully support Frederick's bohemian adventure came from an understanding of just how fragile this arrangement really was. Every martial state-building project a composite monarch pursued created a centrifugal pull away from centralizing authority in the monarchy's component parts. But refusing to engage in a project carried its own risk at a time when the powers of Europe were sharpening their polities into machines of religious righteousness. The British Isles seethed impotently, Mm -hmm. religiously divided. The merchants of the cities, taken with the most strident variety of Calvinism and alienated from the established Church of England, directed their social and economic anxieties into a political vision that fused religion and business. Nowhere was this trend more noticeable than in the financing of England's nascent North American colonies. With the established, religiously moderate landowners of the country eschewing funding such risky ventures, the money and manpower to develop New England came from Calvinist merchants. In 1604, James commissioned an official Anglican-English translation of the Bible. You may have heard of it. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of famous. Kind of famous, often found in hotel rooms. Yes. It was, or is that a different one? Did the Gideons uh, the give Gideon you the King Bible, ja- yeah. The is Gideon that King Bible James? Is a, I don't... Look, no. I, we're, I'm not going to wade into this. Sound no. off in the comments. Which, which one do you prefer? It was published in 1611, and contrary to the king's desires, only deepened the religious ferment and division within the kingdom. Like Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, James spent his last years avoiding the mounting failures of his reign by retreating into fantasy. In James's case, that meant becoming fixed on the idea that he was under spiritual attack by witches. James had instigated a witch panic in Scotland and published a book of witchcraft called Demonology. He muted his public stance after moving to England, where witch accusations were greeted with greater skepticism. But as his health declined, riddled with gout and kidney stones, he drank to numb the pain. James withdrew from the business of government and awaited his judgment, finally dying in 1625. One thing that becomes very important in this era is to what extent the foreign policy of the sovereign uh, reflected the religious intents of the population. So back in, say, Elizabeth's realm, uh, she kept this kind of high Anglicanism that hewed more closely to Catholicism, but pacified the Protestant elements of the country of the uh, upper uh, bourgeois nobility by having an aggressive pro-Protestant foreign policy. Yes. So if you're supporting Protestants outside the kingdom, you can get a little more accommodation inside the kingdom for your less reformed church. Precisely, yes. So then this brings us back to one of the two stars of this arc. Charles, the first Stuart, was born in November of the year 1600 in Dunfermline Palace, Scotland. He was the second son of James VI and his wife, Anne of Denmark. At the age of three, Charles was abandoned in Scotland when his parents and older siblings headed off to London to assume the throne. Charles was sent to live with his father's associate, Lord Fivey, who already had ten children of his own. Charles did not flourish in his youth, barely starting to speak by age three. And shortly after, he developed a disorder that would define his body and personality, rickets. Charles developed a low height and weight, a pigeon chest, bowed legs, loose joints, fragile bones, and decayed teeth. At full height, he would only grow to be five foot four inches tall. 
As well, it's speculated the rickets contributed to a lifelong personality of apathy and irritability. Charles was bounced from nurses to family friend Lord Fivey's house and eventually transferred to other foster parents in London, where a disinterested James I suggested the boy be forced to wear iron boots to strengthen his legs. Charles's older brother, Henry Frederick, was tall and capable and destined for the throne. Partially encouraged by James, Henry would taunt Charles mercilessly. He once grabbed the Archbishop of Canterbury's hat and shoved it onto Charles, saying that he'll one day make Charles the Archbishop since the robes would hide his hideous legs. Oh, burn. Yes, it's, it's, it, Charles's childhood sounds uh, pretty uh, terrible. Charles developed as a frustrated and headstrong child, seemingly compensating for his physical weakness by a combination of feeble determination and bouts of rage. Then, also, he pathetically sucked up to his older brother Henry in desperate need for approval, saying, Sweet, sweet brother, I will give everything I have to you, both horses, and my books, and my guns, and my crossbow, or anything you would have. Good brother, love me. Charles wrote that to Henry when he was nine. He's just not that India, dude. Yes, very pathetic. Well, Charles never got Henry's love, but he did get his crown. Because in November of 1612, Henry died at the age of 18 of typhoid fever after a particularly hard-played game of tennis. You really could just die from getting winded back then. I know. It's it's, I, was, I, this, I was just going to say, it's like, you know, two episodes ago, we cataloged the litany of horrors that befell the uh, victims of the Thirty Years' War. But it's also, it is like grimly funny to just remember that this era was so brutal that a prince who should be the most coddled person in your whole country could just go play tennis hard enough that he died. Yep. Whoops. Now, you, now the guy you were grooming to lead is gone because he, he hit a ball too hard. Yeah, that's wild. So at the age of 12, sickly, prickly little Charles became heir apparent, and he continued to develop his love of riding and hunting, a way to show strength and vigor over his frail little body. Teddy Roosevelt ass. <laughs> well, the, th- the thing is that Teddy eventually kind of figured out how yeah, to do he it. Yeah, figured it out. Yeah. He was more of a, a, a trying for it. Yes, but, uh, but Charles is just... Uh, Here's the thing. He's a puny guy. Yeah, he's a little pipsqueak. Yes. He doesn't get he doesn't get the meat on his bones that Teddy does. So we've already covered Charles's adolescent misadventures to Spain to woo the Infanta with his companion advisor and surrogate older brother, the Duke of Buckingham. This was the thing with the uh, the fake beards and disastrous diplomacy. Uh, having failed and humiliated in that pursuit, in 1625, Charles marries Henrietta Maria, the Catholic princess of France and daughter of Henry III Navarre and Marie Medici. At first, their arranged marriage is cold, unhappy, and distant. But with the death of Buckingham in 1628, Charles's affection is seemingly transferred from him to his wife, and their marriage becomes loving and supportive. Charles takes the throne that same year, 1625, and surrounds himself with a retinue of trusted advisors and courtiers who support his leadership, conceal his deformity, and contribute to a world of blissful royal domesticity. Against all the political trauma to follow, their court would project a model of functional royal courtly ideal for the era. Charles would be loved by those who saw him daily and loathed by those who knew him from afar. And his soon-to-be disastrous mixture of indecision and stubbornness would be encouraged by those closest to him. Uh, Charles often gets the rap as, as a huge idiot, and he's certainly not the brightest bulb. Uh, he, he's... Very indecisive, which is yes. a form of of uh, of it, like lack of confidence here in your own intellect. Uh, but a lot of it is not his fault because he literally does not know what's happening. He can't know. Uh, he's living in a different world at a different in a different 
chronological space mm-hmm. than the people who are resisting him. And they have access to levers of power that he doesn't even know exist until they're being wheeled against him. Yes. Uh, and so his real fault is that in facing that, mm-hmm. he can't fucking make up his mind. He lacks the thing that leading from the front, being a military leader, is supposed to give you, which is decisiveness. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't fought a battle his whole goddamn life. He just rides around in the royal forest and hunts captive bread deer he does a fake thing, thing yes he never imbibes the actual mm-hmm. uh, uh experience that sharpens his de- decision and we'll probably talk about this more as we come on but there are several points in this story where if he had just followed through the course of events that he set out to do and actually did what he th- what he thought he was going to he probably could have headed off what's coming to him but he backs down a number of times at places where he should have stood firm and one thing leads to another. And it shows how meritocracy in any form, and I got to tell you, I'm sorry, uh, uh, neo-reactionaries, uh, 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 aristocracy is just this uh, a fossilized meritocracy. It mm-hmm. is the, the best fighters, essentially, are, are, uh, uh, get, by their ability to fight, are gain, gain phys- uh, political power. But their descendants will, over time, if they win long enough, mm-hmm. not do that anymore. Right. And then you go from breeding people who can rule in this context to people who are incapable of ruling under. Uh, definitionally incapable yes, of ruling. Yes, exactly. Like it can, it's dysgenic yes. leadership. But, you know, and he's going to get his lunch eaten by a guy, uh, Oliver Cromwell, who's nobody's idea of a genius. Yes. But who is living in a different world at a yes. different pace and gives him uh, decisive advantages in in man- managing the uh the state apparatuses that are being thrown up by this conflict yes we they are charles and cromwell are are literally operating off of perpendicular orthogonal decision making matrix yep. matrices and because one is functional in the moment and one is oppositional to the moment because cromwell is forged in the frantic preca- precarity of commercial life yes so Let's talk about him. Meanwhile, Oliver Cromwell was born in April 1599, just one year before Charles. He was born in Huntingdon, near Cambridge, the fifth of ten children and the only male to survive to adulthood. The family's wealth had grown to relative heights, then diminished over the past century or so, leaving Oliver as what we might think of as a, a downwardly mobile member of the landed gentry. His grandfather had enjoyed 2,000 pounds a year and his father only 300 pounds a year in income. This is the this is the noble experience, mm-hmm. largely yes. in terms of the number of nobles in a, in a society. They're going to experience downward mobility mm-hmm. over time because that land can only be divided up so many ways, uh, and, and second, third children get less of it or none. Yes, and uh, the the Cromwell family, his whole life is just this shrinking atoll of property and power. Mm-hmm. His grander relatives had lived on estates with tenants and mansions built from those same confiscated church lands in estates and houses grand enough to entertain the king. King James I was a a frequent stopper at uh, some of Oliver's relatives' house. Uh, But Oliver Cromwell would have to work for a living. Oh, my God. Oliver studied briefly at Cambridge, but left before finishing to become the head of his household when his father died in 1617. In 1620, Oliver married Elizabeth Boucher, uh, whose family's position brought Cromwell into the orbit of the increasingly agitated, prominent puritanical parliamentarians, the prominent puritanical parliamentarians. And like so many people who rise through the ranks of the society, what did he do? He married into it to yes. a degree. After this time, Cromwell entered a period of material, mental, and spiritual crisis. 
He was forced to liquidate his family's home and become a tenant on a farm <gasps> in the neighboring oh, town boy. of St. Ives. Can you imagine Yikes. the shame? Oh, did you hear about Oliver? He has to actually get out in the field with a hoe. He is sinking. Oh, he is swirling He's around the drain here. Kids, yeah. He suffered from a deep depression for which he was treated by a London physician. He would come out of it through a fairly profound conversion to puritanical belief, writing his cousin, quote, you know what my manner of life hath been? Oh, I lived in and loved darkness and hated the light. I was a chief, the chief of sinners. This is true. I hated godliness, yet God had mercy on me. Oh, the riches of his mercy. Praise him for me that he who hath begun a good work would perfect it to the day of Christ. Now, at least in what I was able to come up with, I couldn't, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Cromwell was actually doing anything particularly wicked in this period. I couldn't, uh, in any of my reading, I didn't see any, like, I don't know, whatever, gambling or whoring or cheating or stealing or anything. From what I can see, I'm inclined to believe that his chief, quote, sinfulness of this era was the very Calvinist mind crime of simply not prospering and feeling bad about He's it. He's a loser. Yes. The market is revealing God's favor, and God is not favoring you. What's wrong, Oliver? I must be sinning. Yes. I must be turning away the light, or else I'd be making some money because God would favor me. Absolutely. But regardless, Cromwell became more involved in the Puritan cause. Oh, what an inch. Well, shock. Yes. I, I can't hack it mm-hmm. uh, in the material world. I guess I'll hand my, put my hand in politics. The last refuge of the loser <laughs> and in capitalism. If you're making money under the system, you are busy making money under the system. It is only when you are stuck with your failure that you start thinking of a way to turn the entire wheel of of society, which is a crazy thing to want to do. I'm sorry. And to that end around this time, he even attempted to emigrate to Connecticut in the mid-1630s, though the scheme and the people that he was uh, working with to do it, it, it fell through and he didn't actually go there. But, you know, he could have been. One of these guys with buckles on their hats yep. that was uh, celebrating Thanksgiving in Connecticut in mm-hmm. 1630s or whenever. He then inherited some property and finally got his family wealth back on to a respectable level by the end of the decade. And he was elected to parliament in 1628 and then again in 1640 with support from the godly elements of his of the Cambridge gentry. So the biggest losers who felt worst about losing went to North America. Mm-hmm. I'll die on a boat rather than deal with the shame yes. and the, the cognitive dissonance of failing here. And knowing that I'm not going to be able to change the entire Commonwealth, the people who were doing okay and able to f- handle their precarity within this structure, they got into politics mm-hmm. one way or the other and got into church politics. And then the real successes were making money and only having, only acting when they had to. And in that case, to put money on somebody, to place a bet. And often, uh, you know, we're going to get into Parliament right now. Uh, you know, the, the people who are chosen to go to Parliament, it's often a way in this time for your local community to bestow a kind of honor on on somebody. So the and people an who income are, that yeah. maybe you couldn't make, yes, uh, at business. So the people who end up going are largely not the wealthiest people from their era, but somebody who is, would want to strive up in their local society and then hopefully be chosen by the more well-off people around them to to, to give them a little leg up. Something with no somebody with nothing better to do, basically. <laughs> so the English Parliament we're talking about, in the words of historian Jeffrey Parker, formed the largest representative assembly in the early modern world. This is a small ass country too. Mm-hmm. Remember this: 150 nobles sat in the House of Lords, and nearly 600 sat in the Commons. Any man with two pounds of property was eligible to vote. So up to 500,000 votes could be seen to be cast in a single parliamentary election. This meant that electoral politics became a channel for the religious and economic grievances and aspirations of the febrile, agitated middle class. 
Some ascending from the peasantry, some declining from the aristocracy like mm-hmm. Cromwell, all frantic for something to change, most happy to blame the king for the fact of their agony. Oliver Cromwell perfectly exemplified this class. No longer able to sustain himself on the land, forced into the anxious world of the market where all men must meet each other as strangers and the taking of advantage is the only path to prosperity. Calvinism alloyed the destiny of the soul with the fatness of the pocketbook. <laughs> but Charles's Britain, with its popish Anglican church, stagnant economy, and aimless foreign policy, endangered both. Mm-hmm. The Puritans, who were most anxious for their to, for souls and prospects, fled into England, seeking to rebuild a community of God where all believers could be as brothers, but only godless natives being taken advantage of. But they brought the plague rat of the market with them. The ones who stayed, like Cromwell, were forced to confront the reality that their vision of a godly kingdom was incompatible with that of their sovereign lords. So, that's the table setting. We can now get into this conflict. And just to preface this section, we are not going to be covering the English Civil War with as much detail and the course of battles and movements as we did with the Thirty Years' War. Our goal here is to highlight the uh, the parallels between what's going on in England with what's going on in the continent, and provide context for what happens after the war, when the when the course of English history meets back up with continental history to resolve our full story. If you want more on who moved which cavalry company where and charged who when, uh, I recommend popping over to the first season of Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast for a more detailed blow-by-blow. And as we were just talking about before recording, one of the big things here is uh, English Civil War battle is pretty boring. Ooh, it's boring stuff, folks. You, you don't see any uh, brilliant 90-degree uh, reformations of your infantry line like yes. you saw at Brettenfeld. It's just one group of dudes smashing into another group of dudes. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, the freaks wanted it more. <laughs> there just you go. pure horsepower. Yes. So Charles spends the early part of his reign working with George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, who I mentioned before. Uh, They worked together on several bungled interventions in the continent. First, Buckingham helped organize, at the end of James I's reign, support for Frederick V's quest to regain the Palatinate against the Habsburgs. Frederick's wife, Elizabeth, was, remember, James's daughter and Charles's sister. So they're intimately related to the Thirty Years' War conflict, though they don't really get much uh, together to actually uh, intervene like some of the other crowns of this time. Uh, The crown, though, did enlist Ernst von Mansfeld, remember him, uh, to field an army. Uh, But when they couldn't agree with their French co-funders on which Habsburgs they were actually attacking, the German or the Spanish, Mansfeld's army just goes to relieve Breda in the Netherlands and kind of peters out in failure. When Charles ascends to the throne in 1625, Buckingham then organizes a failed naval expedition against the Spanish at Cadiz in 1625, then to La Rochelle in French first in support of Richelieu and against the Huguenot, then in support of the Huguenot against Richelieu. Uh, Neither of these La Rochelle expeditions were successful, and embarrassment and anger mounted around the figure of Buckingham. Uh, And then the Duke is assassinated in 1628 by a pissed-off army officer, wounded and then left unpaid from one of Buckingham's misadventures. Buckingham's death is greeted with much public rejoicing. He was really disliked by the end of his life. Nobody liked Buckingham. But all this adventure, of course, took money from the king, which required a parliament to raise. Europe is currently going through a continent-spanning financial crisis. Remember the Kipper und Wipperzeit and the uh, currency crisis, the, uh, the lack of specie that we went over at the top of the Thirty Years' War? Well, that is also affecting, of course, England, and previously allocated taxes for the royal house couldn't keep pace with inflation. 
So Charles calls three parliaments in his early rule in 1625 and 1626 and again in 1628. Matt, do you want to run through the first three parliaments of Charles I? Okay, so Charles wished to secure his reign by reversing his father's unpopular stance of neutrality in the Thirty Years' War with that attack on Spain. That first parliament agreed to fund the Spanish expedition, but broke with 200 years of precedent by granting tonnage and poundage remember that guy, mm-hmm. and import, ex- which is an import and export levy that is put at the king's personal discretion for only one year instead of for Charles' entire reign, which was traditional. Yes. This is a sign of conflict to come. Mm-hmm. This, the, these guys did not come to play. Yes. The next year, Charles calls another parliament to ask for some more money, but all the MPs want to do is complain about Buckingham, mm-hmm. and Charles dismisses them before they make a move to impeach. Now, at that point, Charles would have loved to have never seen these assholes again, but the necessities of foreign policy once again intervene. In this case, it's Charles's desire to bail out his uncle, King Christian of Denmark. Remember him? Who is presently getting his ass kicked by Wallenstein. <laughs> Rather than call another parliament and get yelled at again, Charles tries to find some revenue through other means. Among them, forced loans. It's not a tax. It's nope. a loan. You just loan. have to give it, <laughs> and we might not pay it back. This further inflamed the parliamentary types who rallied around some knights who went on trial for refusing to pay. There are are a number of these moments that we're probably not going to get super into, but basically every time the King Charles tries to do something, there develops a single case that becomes almost like a celebrity trial. Oh, look how they're railroading these guys over here. And then the parliament uh, rallies around a few figures who who are come off as uh, martyrs to the King's tyranny. Yeah. And it's these knights here. This is like... uh this is essentially the bourgeois version of uh, single combat. Yes. Like these little, these public displays mm-hmm. that, fu- that uh, identify heroes right. and political leaders through their resistance. Uh, now, eventually, Charles is forced to recall Parliament in 1628, and the parliamentarians have used all that time to plan a strategy of confrontation. They immediately issue a petition of right that most Americans would recognize today. Demands for no taxation or loans or gifts without parliamentary approval. No imprisonment without charge. No quartering of soldiers in private homes without consent. Which is always the one that seems like the the, mo- the most what the hell amendment in America was, but was a big issue back then. Remember those guys from the hell episode uh, who had troops quartered in their house and then had to pay, who, who were uh, whoring all day and then they had to pay for their the quartered troops kids baptism in I a religion know. outside of the ones of the households and taking their fucking jewelry out of the dressers. And yes, shit? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a big deal. Charles resisted, he bargained, he whined, but eventually agreed to recognize the petition. Parliament take this as, took this as a green light to press for further royal concessions. That leads to a dramatic scene on March 10th, 1629, where Charles dismisses Parliament. But three members of the, of the House physically restrain the Speaker from standing up to prevent him from calling for an adjournment and allowing more motions against the King to be passed. <laughs> Charles was able to successfully dissolve Parliament the next day. As so 1629 is also the year that saw, in the words of a contemporary observer, so wonderful and great a flood as had not been seen in 40 years. While Charles spent the next decade trying to rule without calling Parliament, the countryside was racked by the effects of the Little Ice Age, mm-hmm. with droughts, bitterly cold and extended winters, and harvest failures rampant. One of these droughts in 1636 led the Venetian ambassador to report to the Doge that Everyone declares there is no memory of such a misfortune in England, whose usually damp climate is so changed that the trees in the land are despoiled of their verdure as if it were a most severe winter. 
and the funny thing is is that 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 dispatch that oh man this is the worst winter on record is from uh 1636 basically like every other year throughout the english civil war somebody is saying my god this is the worst weather we've ever seen constant background that has to be emphasized can't be emphasized enough is that the 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 uh, agricultural machine of england is breaking down yes every single uh season one way or the other so charles dismisses parliament and decides who needs these clowns anyway and for the next decade clowns in parliament these clowns in parliament somebody call the circus because all the clowns are in parliament so for the next decade charles refuses to call parliament in a period known as the personal rule as long as the crown was able to keep itself out of wars it should be able to keep itself reasonably funded and after the misadventures of the 1620s charles would avoid further entanglement in continental affairs but the government still had to find revenue somewhere which led to a series of financial innovations that only increased antagonism between the king and the parliamentary class. This included some little ticky-tacky ideas like fining certain gentlemen for not attending the king's coronation, Uh, but the most notorious of these non-taxes was ship money. Ship money was another one of these ancient feudal rights that Charles dusted off and expanded. This one pertained to raising money from coastal counties during a time of war to support a navy, But Charles now imposed this fee throughout the kingdom and without there being a war on, which pissed a lot of people right off. Uh, So Charles used the same regalian rights strategy of funding government without submitting to regional elites that Richelieu and Arlovaris are employing at the same time. Mm -hmm. But the activated, agitated middle class of England was able to mobilize significant political energy around resistance. Guys with names like Prudence Goodbody going (laughs) sovereign citizen and denying the king's right to tax them and therefore becoming public martyrs in prolonged public trials. So we should also take a moment here to discuss Archbishop William Laud and his religious innovations. As Laud ascended to the highest position in the Anglican Church, he championed an Episcopalian ideology that brought the church closer in line with Arminian Calvinism theology. Now, remember the Arminians? Yes. This is the high church that's going to develop and eventually evolve into first mainline Protestantism and then secular humanism. So Laud favored an ornate, highly ceremonial church, which aligned with Charles I's beliefs and whole style. But to the godly parliamentarians, it just smacked of creeping popery. This is popery. They're taking the table out and putting it at altar. Yes. Like that's a big part of it is that you're supposed to sit across and among your fellow church members. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to be looking at an authority. Yes, but that with the, they're putting railings between you and the 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 priest to emphasize the separation between the, the yes, the the authority that stems from the Anglican leadership and the congregation. This should all be the same thing. Yes. But the funny thing is that while all of these debates are a a very clear and important uh, religious ideology at the time, it kind of comes off to me that loud is, is mostly an aesthetics guy. Oh yeah. He He loves it. He likes just fancy, nice. The church should look nice. The church should look nice. It should be ornate. And he kind of comes off as your like classic upper class British fruit. Yes. Just a a, a fancy lad as it were. Uh, but, you know, that fancy laddom does, it's structured on top of a real idea idea of what the church is. Yes. And it is a, uh, it is a grounding institution. Mm-hmm. It is a social reality. Yes. And the 
it takes money to make fancy stuff. Yes. And that means the church gets money. Yes. And that means you have a society that is literally funding mm-hmm. consciously its own structures of reaffirming religious belief. Mm-hmm. That is not the world that the Calvinists recognize. That They only are alienated from that structure. Yes. They see it as giving false doctrine. Right. The only true doctrine can be found among fellow church members. So aesthetics would be a huge battlefield for this whole conflict as a spree of an iconoclasm would hit the country uh, when the conflict actually begins. We talked about the uh, breaking of the glass windows in the 16th century. That shit goes into turbo mode in the 1640s. In some places, the main violence of the Civil War would manifest as the wanton destruction of stained glass, crucifixes, rails, altars, really anything of design or beauty within the church. Even the Puritans' notorious ban on Christmas would play out over aesthetics, with the plenty of Christmas time being verboten. One John Taylor would uh, sarcastically quip that for the Puritans, quote, plum pottage was mere popery, and that a collet of brawn was an abomination, that roast beef was anti-Christian, that mince pies were relics of the whore of Babylon, and a goose or a turkey or capon were marks of the beast. Literal ass Grinches. Yes. The Grinch is a Puritan. <laughs> But Laud and Charles both desired to bring the entirety of the three kingdoms under a single religious orthodoxy, and it was Laud's vision of high Anglicanism they hoped to impose. As the 1630s wore on, the fear of secret crypto-Catholics laying in wait to stage a takeover of England reached the level of a moral panic. At this point, there were probably only 30,000 Catholics in a nation of around 4 million But the Laudian reforms, coupled with the visibility of Queen Henrietta Maria's unabashed Catholicism, itself making Catholicism a fad among Charles's court, there were an exorbitant number of of high noble conversions to Catholicism led basically personally around the popularity of Henrietta Maria. Uh, This all led to an acute paranoia among the Protestant class. For the godly parliamentarians, the gunpowder plot of 1605 reached the psychic level of a narrowly avoided 9-11, and anti-Catholic Guy Fawkes Day celebrations became more and more popular every year. Printing presses poured out rumors of cells of Catholics ready to encircle London and take it by force. People in pubs speculated the Irish Catholics might invade Wales and conquer England itself. Anti-Catholic riots broke out across the land, and once the Civil War fully breaks out, there will be some truly nasty anti-Catholic lynchings. As well, Charles's non-interventionalist foreign policy, especially to aid the besieged continental Protestants, while it saved the crown money, just stoked further hysteria about crypto-Catholicism in the king's court. The anti-Catholicism was just the sharpest edge of Puritan fear and hatred for Charles and Laud's religious regime. It's the most panicked expression of the fear that any straying away from the godly Calvinism and towards the hated Arminianism is just the last stop on the way back to a full embrace of the papal antichrist. And these religious tensions are what's really going to set this whole thing off in 1637. Now, the Laudian reforms sought to bring religious uniformity to England, Scotland, and Ireland, and to get all of Charles's subjects to literally sing from the same hymnal. Now, yes, this is due to William Laud's personal vision of an Anglican a united Anglican communion, encouraging Bible reading with maintaining, well-maintaining ecclesiastical hierarchy that could guide Bible readers to godly conclusions and help them lead godly lives. But it was also part of a broader Stuart drive to harmonize the governance of the composite monarchy. 
When Charles had ascended to the throne, he envisioned creating a military funding system like the ill-fated Spanish Union of Arms that would have seen every element of his domain contributing to the common defense. To fund the scheme, Charles made a declaration of revocation when he was crowned in Scotland. This was a traditional method for a new Scottish monarch to reclaim crown lands that had been lost by their predecessor. All who had obtained lands for the church or the king during the previous regime would have their ownership titles revoked. The new king would then reclaim some titles while magnanimously returning most of them to their previous owners, but at more favorable economic terms for the crown. Now, though revocation had precedent, it came at a time of deep economic turmoil and was greeted by the Scottish landowners with unrelenting hostility. After years of grueling negotiation and concession, Charles finally instituted the Declaration of Revocation in 1629. The same year, Ferdinand issued the Edict of Restitution in Germany, Hmm. with the same result of unifying disparate elites against his rule. When Archbishop Laud showed up with his Book of Common Prayer and promised to suborn the congregations of the Scottish Kirk to Arminian crypto-Catholic bishops, the religious question catalyzed elite and popular resistance to economic and cultural centralization. When the revolt came, the wealthy families of Edinburgh sent their maids to do the revolt. Which brings us back to July 1637. On Sunday, July 23rd, the minister of St. Giles Cathedral took the pulpit and began to read from the Book of Common Prayer, the standardized book for Anglican services being prescribed on the kingdoms from Laud and Charles. As he read, a woman, commonly alleged to be named Jenny Geddes, rose and threw her prayer stool at the minister. Soon, the whole congregation devolved into a near riot of verbal abuse and physical objects hurled at the minister, with the women calling out, traitors, belly gods, deceivers. Oh, not belly gods. And sorrow, sorrow for this doleful day that they are bringing popery among us. And soon the riot spread into the streets of Edinburgh. Now, when I say that the maids are doing the revolting here, the Puritan leaders of, of Edinburgh had found out the day before that the book was about to be instituted because it had been sent to the printers in Edinburgh who had done test sheets. Uh, but because paper is very valuable they didn't throw the test sheets away they sold them to on the market and they ended up becoming wrappers for tobacco and pastries and so people are walking down the streets of edinburgh and they see this prayer book uh, when they're eating their freaking uh their brain and kidney pie yes uh and so the grandees get together and plan a demonstration for the next day and they give their maids permission mm-hmm. to riot essentially on their behalf but it also just tells you like kind of what class of people are yes. really orchestrating this. Class of people that can pay somebody else to do their rioting for you. Literally paid protesters. Yes. So then the freeform riots against the prayer book in the summer gave way to formal organizing in the fall. And by February 1638, leading representatives of the Scottish Presbyterians have gathered to adopt the National Covenant, a document pledging those signed to defend the Scottish Kirk and resist changes imposed by far off London. Charles had made it plainly clear that church reform was the king's prerogative, not the meddling of evil conspiring advisors, which is often where the blame goes when there's a conflict between subjects and kings. It's it's the king's advisors who are wrong. Mm-hmm. Can't do it now because Charles even claimed that he had personally written the prayer book, which all put the Scots in direct revolt against the crown. Charles would have to respond with force. So Charles musters an army and heads north, 
saying, quote, so long as the covenant is in force, I am no more in Scotland than a duke in Venice, which I will rather die than suffer. But the king and his men were raw recruits led by men with more experience hunting than making war. The men who made up the Scottish Covenanter forces, especially the command, had spent years, sometimes decades, serving as mercenaries on the continent. One of the top commanders, Alexander Leslie, had been a field marshal for Gustavus Adolphus. He had successfully defended Stralsund from Wallenstein. If you remember, we mentioned him during that episode. Leslie was one of 300 Scottish officers released from Swedish service and allowed to return to their homelands by Chancellor Oxensterna, who had also sent them 4,000 muskets and 30 heavy guns to support the Scottish cause. These two armies get to the Scottish border, stare each other down, and Charles decides, hey, maybe I don't really want to have this fight. At, at least not now. Charles's back down, known to history as the pacification of Beric, more like the pussification of Beric, <laughs> goes a long way towards dooming his reign. Things had gotten to this point thanks to his intransigence, but faced with the reality of making war on his own subjects, he blinked. The Scots were emboldened, and Charles was forced to call a parliament, which would be filled with men who smelled blood in the water. Even his wife Henrietta gave him the rolling pin, <laughs> writing in a letter that if he didn't sack up and take control, she might as well go live in a convent. <laughs> what kind of man are you? What kind you of man are you? Scotland? What are you doing? Where you find your balls? <laughs> As one might imagine, though, after 11 years of stewing in their manor houses and hamlets, 11 years of watching their colleagues badgered over fees and levies and loans, 11 years of printing press spectacle and show trials of the men who refused to pay those loans, the men who assembled for the soon-to-be-known-as Short Parliament in April of 1640 were decidedly not interested in simply voting the king funds to fight their godly cousins north of the River Tweed. The MPs, led by the fiercely anti-Catholic John Pym, and he was like rabidly anti-Catholic even for the time, like, you know, the other anti-Catholics were like, whoa, man, you, Dude, maybe you need to settle, settle down. down a little bit, man. They proceeded to dive right back into debates and recriminations over Charles's abuses of power with little interest in negotiating concessions. Charles has zero patience for this and dismisses the parliament after just three weeks, hence the short parliament. And I will just take a moment here to say... Like starting now, the rest of this section of the story is just a morass of calling and dissolving parliaments over and over with very little done by any constituency. If your eyes start to glaze over with the uh, specific dates of the specific parliaments, that's okay. Analytically, what's important is just to get a sense that the wheels are coming off of this specific political formation's ability to effectively govern under these conditions. But Charles again attempts to raise an army against the Scots and even enlists his new royal favorite, the Earl of Strafford, to help raise an Irish army to help. The Scots take this moment to go on the offensive and positively romp across the Tweed, defeating the English at the only real battle of the first phase of the war, the Battle of Newburn, in August 1640. By the fall of 1640, the Scots are occupying a huge chunk of northern England and charging the crown 850 pounds a day while negotiating further peace to prevent them from ransacking Northumberland and the county Durham. Basically a protection fee. Yes. So Charles has to call another parliament. This one would sit in session for the duration of the war, hence his historical name, the Long Parliament. Long and short parliaments. Very simple. Yes. What's coming next is going to be a lot of attempts to neutralize that power by the king Re, uh, assertions of power by the parliament but the whole time these guys are going to just stay but buckled down right now this body is organized and focused on confronting charles in every respect they issue trumped up treason charges against charles's favorite the earl of stratford charles made passionate pleas on stratford's behalf and promised that he wouldn't allow him to be harmed 
But in the end, Parliament strong-armed him into signing Stratford's death warrant. Parliament also imprisoned Archbishop Laud on treason charges of dubious merit. Mm -hmm. All the while, leading parliamentarians were in secret correspondence with the Scottish Covenanters in an actually treasonous conspiracy to undermine loyal authority. But it's okay because God said it's cool. (laughs) It is astounding when you look at this. They're accusing these people of treason, Laud and Stratford, on incredibly flimsy charges. They're actually, they're going to have to end up depending on bills of attainder to execute them because the, the, uh, the cases are so bad. Meanwhile, they're literally conspiring yes. to undermine the the uh, the, the <clears throat> to undermine the government and to <laughs> to negotiate with people who are in active rebellion against it. Yes, wild. But again, God said it was cool. <laughs> in late 1641, Parliament issues the Grand Remonstrance, a list of offenses committed by Charles, and a proposed list of reforms and resolutions including the removal of bishops from the House of Lords, increased parliamentary control over appointments, and, in a separate bill, increased parliamentary control over the militias. This last issue had become even more important in October of 1641, as Irish Catholics had begun an armed rebellion against the Protestant English and the Scottish administration in Ireland. The Irish situation necessitated raising an army, but neither king nor parliament could trust the other with authority over it. And as well, it raised old fears over the crypto-Catholic allegations around Charles. Even now, though, the remonstrance was presented in the hand-wringing, groveling nature of a parliament that wants to believe its king is good, and that perhaps it's still just his advisors who have misled him, pleading, quote, that his majesty may have cause to be in love with good counsel and good men. As the simmering conflict reached a boil, Charles decided bold action was necessary. On January 4th, 1642, Charles entered Parliament followed by some 400 royal troops. He demanded the immediate arrest of five MPs he believed to be the central radical junto, including John Pym himself. However, someone, perhaps from inside Charles' own court, had tipped the MPs off, and all five of them were not present that day. Charles politely asked the Speaker, By your leave, Mr. Speaker, I must borrow your chair. Charles sat and asked for the members, to which the Speaker, William Lenthal, calmly replied, May it please your Majesty. I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, but as the house is pleased to direct me, and whose servant I am here, and I humbly beg your majesty's pardon that I cannot give any other answer than this to what your majesty is pleased to demand of me. Oh my God, spit it out. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. God. The king strained his eyes to search the room in silence for his quarry, and after a tense moment, Charles, always the hunter, muttered, It seems my birds have flown and walked out of the hall to jeers of privilege, privilege from the MPs. The acidic civility of this scene belies the true reality, that the fatal rupture had occurred between king and parliament. The speaker and the MPs no longer served the king, but themselves. And six days later, on January 10th, Charles, Henrietta Maria, their court, and several royalist MPs fled London. So Charles's decision to leave London was a major strategic blunder. London was, had England's largest arsenal, it had the Royal Mint, the gold reserves, and, of course, the Tower. But at this point, Charles had no longer felt safe at his own capital. Parliament's biggest asset in its showdown with the king was the population of the city. Over and over, Charles found his moves to assert his authority stymied by hostile crowds. In one instance, a London mob prevented him from rescuing his favorite Stratford from parliamentary custody. After the failed attempt to arrest his leading opponents, the danger of retaliation from the streets was too great to ignore, stirring Charles to decamp for Oxford, north of the city. 
The solidarity of London would be shocking to some observers. Travelers and ambassadors would marvel at seeing hordes of people from wealthy merchants to penniless laborers volunteering their time, sometimes even on Sundays, to build out what became quite impressive makeshift bastions and fortifications around the city during the oncoming war. Now, London's restive exploding population, over 250,000 at this point, with over a third living in poverty, was the result of changes in the English countryside that had been centuries in the making. Even before the Black Death, in response to declining soil productivity, English landowners had begun fencing off common lands that had traditionally been used by peasants for common use in order to graze sheep for wool production. This process accelerated rapidly in the 15th century. As the English crown steadily monopolized legal authority, landowners sought compensation by increasing their economic authority by imposing a market for tenant leases. Pennant farmers, stripped of their ability to sustain themselves on common land, were forced to improve their productivity or face eviction. Evicted tenants made their ways to cities, above all London, where large parcels of church lands had been sold and converted to public accommodations by the Henrician reforms. By the 1640s, as many as 6,000 men and women a year arrived in London in search of work. These landless workers provided labor for nascent manufacturers and demand for commercial clothing and foodstuffs, which they would have produced themselves mm-hmm. when living on the land. This created the first internal market in Europe, which would be the keystone upon which Atlantic capitalism would be built. These workers also provided ready recruits for the parliamentary leaders who employed and sold to them. And I think that it can't be underscored enough that, you know, the presence and growth, exploding growth of a true laboring class in London is uh, no coincidence to the, uh, the type of market orientations that are going to develop here. Absolutely. So Charles and his court fled the city, and on August 22nd, 1642, he planted his standard at Oxford, but the hole had been poorly dug, and the standard was blown over and knocked into the mud in the night. But that didn't stop him from calling an army to his cause. Parliament responded by organizing their own army, led by godly aristocrats who'd cut their teeth fighting in the Low Countries, like the Earl of Essex and Thomas Fairfax, who we last saw as a war tourist inspecting the siege lines at Serhottenbosch. Sarah Cottonbush. Sarah Cottonbush. Just had to stick that in one yeah. last time. Though, since we've started actually publishing the series, a few Dutch listeners have gotten in touch to tell me most Dutch just refer to it as Den Bosch. Which, I mean, come on. You admit your goofy-ass town name isn't even worth pronouncing in your language. Not my problem. Sarah Cottonbush. Parliament moved to professionalize and rationalize the war fighting capacity. A self-denying ordinance that had required members of the Lords or Commons who had military commissions to resign one or the other removed many aristocrats from command positions. The creation of a new model army replaced regional armies raised by local grandees with a single national military force. And it was in this context that the obscure parliamentarian Oliver Cromwell was able to rise through the ranks. Now, Meanwhile, in the King's Army, one of the key cavalry commanders was Prince Rupert, now styled Rupert of the Rhine, last seen failing spectacularly to regain his father, Frederick V's claim to the Palatinate. Rupert was the beau ideal of the Cavalier, the dashing aristocratic horse soldier who defined the king's side of the war. Mm -hmm. Rupert led his cavalry from the front in bold style, often smashing through parliamentary lines, but then instead of reforming his forces and returning to the battle, they tended to chase his fleeing enemies right off the battlefield and get lost in the search for plunder. The problem was that Rupert was your kind of a diva Baroque-style cavalry commander. It's true. The roundheads were real uh, lunch pail focus on the fundamentals, play to win types, yep. uh, which gives them tremendous advantage in the, uh, in the, the upcoming war. And one of the keys to Cromwell's ascent would be his strict... Uh, say puritanical relationship to order of keeping order among his men 
Cromwell offers reward and loyalty to those kept in order and severe punishment to those out of order. And this creates a class of citizen troops bonded by trust and spirituality to the army over all other institutions. Meanwhile, the king's side still relies on the trained bands scrounged mm-hmm. up by uh, uh, landowners largely. Uh, and over time, that uh, disparity in organizational capacity becomes overwhelming. Okay, so we got these two armies. Again, we're not going to go through the details of the military maneuvers here. We've gone through the Thirty Years' War, so you get a sense of what fighting was like at this time. Um, it's played out similarly with about half the scale armies here in England. Uh, there's some sieges, some big battles, all in places named like Hopton Heath and Bramber Bridge, Naseby, Tadcaster, and Roundway Down. Uh, all very English place names in mm-hmm. this in this conflict. Uh, it goes fairly well for the Royalists at first, but uh, Parliament slowly gains the upper hand, especially after the reorganized new model army really goes into effect. Uh, Charles tries to link up with the Irish Royalists. Parliament successfully enlists the Scottish Covenanters. Like the Continental War, harsh violence and deprivations are brought upon the citizenry. Massacres abound on both sides. Property is destroyed, looted, repossessed by soldiers, special destruction placed on high Anglican church property. It's 17th century warfare. It's not pretty. It's very, very ugly. But by 1646, the Royalists were on the verge of total defeat. After donning a disguise and attempting to escape Oxford, Charles is put under guard by David Leslie, the commander of Newark, and shortly thereafter is a prisoner of Parliament. Now, at this point, every major political faction still considered it essential for the king to remain at the top of government. It's just a matter of what arrangement and concessions could be negotiated. What emerges from the First English Civil War, because yes, they will get back to fighting again in a second, is the new model army as its own political faction, independent of the Presbyterian parliamentary leaders they're supposed to be responsible to. The new model army is unique among military forces of the mid-17th century. Uh, as with many features of the heavily commercialized, highly literate English social structure, the army prefigured elements of the participatory capitalism that would succeed the feudal political order. The armies that fought the English Civil War began as regional militias under control by local power holders. Difficult to organize, often reluctant to fight outside their home areas, these trained bands, as they were called, were ill-suited to winning an unprecedented war against the forces of the country's sovereign. Parliament dissolved the regional armies and reconstituted their forces into a single, streamlined unit with far fewer officers. The Numal Army also embraced the technological changes of the time. The ratio of pike to shot Mm -hmm. that had persisted during most of the Thirty Years' War changed with much more of the forces being composed of uh, musketeers. Also, with a transition from the old matchlock uh, uh, muskets that were used during most of the conflict in Germany where you had a slow match that you kept going to ignite your powder, uh, they br- started using the most advanced technology, the flintlock, which ignited the powder with, with the, the, sparks, the, yes. the spark of a flint. So the new model army was an effective military resource, but it also developed its own political culture. The sought come into the conflict with the Presbyterian parliamentary faction. Farmers, clerks, servants, artisans, and laborers brought together under one flag, fighting for parliamentary governments and the hazy dream of democracy that parliament represented. At the base of the conflict was the fact that by the time Charles surrendered himself at Oxford to the Scots, salary payments to the army were over a million pounds in arrears. 
Also, the stern Calvinist vision of Presbyterianism shared by the Scots and the leaders of Parliament was alienating to many in the army who considered themselves religiously independent. Mm-hmm. They had not fought the war to trade the imperious Anglicanism of Charles for the imperious Congregationalism of the Kirk. To increase their leverage, army troops led by a former tailor named George Joyce essentially kidnapped Charles from Scottish custody. This led to a showdown between Parliament and the army and between representatives of the enlisted soldiers and their officers that we'll dive further into next week. Yes. The upshot is that while the army and the parliament dickered, the Scots became convinced that there was no political authority in England that would be able to impose the Presbyterian church on the entire kingdom. Enter Charles, who begins a correspondence (laughs) with the Scots in which he vows to impose Presbyterianism for a three-year trial period across all of his domains. The three-year trial trial period really gets it. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) Yes. The religious conflict between the Arch-Anglican Charles and the Scottish Covenanters had kicked off the whole war in the first place. Right. But history is nothing if not hilarious. The king is still the embodiment of sovereignty in the realm, and the Scots see him as a more stable negotiating partner than the fractious parliamentary side. And at this point, Charles was willing to make any deal that would keep him out of custody and affirm his reign. Right. Alter pew, schmalter pews. Desperate to reclaim the initiative, the Scots take the king up on his offer and invade England again on his behalf. I mean, it's another perfect example of the how Charles's indecision is the real thing that gets him. Because at this point, things had developed enough where he realized that clinging to his vision of religious uniformity was not going to be enough to keep his rule, which you see if he had maybe realized a few years before, but he couldn't have because he had it because he had to fight a war. Yep. He had to get his ass kicked by his own people before he can before again his decision making matrix can evolve to the to the point where he sees, hey, maybe there's some compromises to be made. Yeah. He has to learn by doing and then getting his ass kicked. Yes. Uh so yes, the the key thing to remember also about the this this fraction between the Presbyterians and the independents in England is mm-hmm. that it does have a class component, of course. Mm-hmm. That Presbyterianism becomes the uh, political and religious pivot point of mm-hmm. the emerging bourgeois in government and out, whereas the independents make up uh, is the expression of this cross-class alliance that mm-hmm. is brought together through the experience of fighting the war right. in the army. So with the Scots invading, we have the second English Civil War. Um, the Second English Civil War was much shorter, taking place entirely during 1648. Starting as a series of royalist revolts, followed by the Scots invading the North under the command of the Duke of Hamilton, another one of these Scottish guys who cut his teeth fighting under Gustavus Adolphus in Germany. However, Hamilton is nowhere near as good as Leslie, who quit this campaign over disagreements about allying with Charles. Are which, you fucking kidding me? What are you talking about? <laughs> So Cromwell wheels the new model army up north and kicks Hamilton's ass at Preston in August 1648, ending this phase of the conflict. The king was again under parliamentary custody, but now the question of whether it was worth it or even possible to negotiate with this man became key. As Parliament began negotiations with Charles to return him to power with concessions, the new model army leadership decide they can no longer sanction the king's buffoonery. And on December 6th, 1648, Colonel Thomas Pride was ordered to forcibly prevent the entry of some 140 moderate MPs into Parliament, a number of whom were arrested and detained for several days. This left around 156 of the eligible 470 members of the House of Commons left serving in London. And this became known as the Rump Parliament. Uh, The edited Parliament. Yes. (laughs) uh, To to get to move things along. (laughs) 
Uh, now, by this point, it had become clear to the leaders of Parliament and the army that Charles could not be reasoned with. There was no path to an agreement that would enshrine the rights sought by Parliament while also ratifying Charles's supreme authority, supreme sovereignty. Among the greater public, Charles's authority and credibility had been destroyed by the publication of a 50-page pamphlet called The King's Cabinet Open. That's a good, <gasps> see, that's a good title. Oh, yeah, you get them with that one. Yeah, they're learning this branding stuff because, you know, maybe a generation before it would be like, notes from the duly uh, revealed documents of the king reveling in the perfidy of his lies and most calamitous, treasonous uh, devil work that has been done on our behalf. You <laughs> yep. know, something like that. Yes. Yep. Now, The King's Punchy Cabinet baby. Open. Yep. That those printing presses are humming now. Yes. After the decisive royalist defeat at the Battle of Naseby in June 1645, parliamentary forces had captured Charles's baggage train, which included his personal correspondence. These letters were filled with bitchy asides about his own advisors, <laughs> groveling payons to his French Catholic wife, and most damningly of all, offers to the rebellious Irish Catholic Confederation, which rules most of Ireland outside of Dublin in revolt. Mm-hmm. Uh, of religious offering them religious toleration in exchange for military support that last was particularly inflaming because grisly and exaggerated press reports of catholic atrocities committed against scottish and english settlers in ireland had been key to rallying support for parliament in the beginning of the war one such report claimed that 150,000 protestants were massacred at ulster which was greater than the number of protestants on the entire island <laughs> this is a classic example of your lie in fake news media right uh, but those stories got people who were on the fence about taking up arms for parliament willing to do it because mm-hmm. they thought the alternative was not the king in power. It was a rampaging army of Catholic Irish heathens uh, burning down your churches. And that's more playing into this uh, this red scare, basically, yes. about Catholicism going on, even though there aren't that even many Catholics There's left not anymore. There's not that many left, but they're over there in Ireland and they're seething. And now they're in revolt. They run the country. They're, uh, they're making offers to the king of Spain to invade. Uh, and now the king is in cahoots with them. The King's Cabinet Open contained many of these letters, along with damning annotations and juxtapositions with the King's contrary public statements. The publication of this pamphlet is part of a publishing explosion spurred by the collapse of royal censorship in England. There had been one newspaper in England before the war. By 1642, there were 60. Debates over the King's rule and the nature of governance filled bookstalls in their thousands. This new public sphere kindled ideas that would have been literally unimaginable to previous generations of Englishmen. For many of his subjects, Charles was no longer their king, but rather a man of blood, mm. a biblical term for a specific villain who was a slayer of the innocent. Although no one in the leadership of the parliamentary side sought the death of the king, which would have thrown the British Isles into an abyss few could contemplate, it became increasingly clear that Charles's continued refusal to recognize the titanic changes that had rocked his domain were an even greater threat to continued order. Purification requires sacrifice, and to purify a new church and a new form of government would require a blood sacrifice proportionate to the task. Matt, do you think that there is a single point of no return for killing the king, or does it have to be all of these things? I think certainly once he uh, invites the Scots in, Mm -hmm. uh, you know that he's not going to stop. Yes. Uh, You know that he he will only buy time. And that will only undermine your position. But again, as we were just talking about, you know, that is him learning to operate under this system. Yeah. Even though the system that he has then learned to operate has then moved forward yes. in another way. He can't into know Into no a manageable way. Yes. Yeah. In December 1648, the rump speedily set up a high court of justice to try the king. 
They circumvented the need for any royal authorization or consent of the House of Lords and simply declared the Commons' vote an official act of Parliament. 135 commissioners were assembled. The proceedings began on January 20th. The king stood accused, quote, guilty of all the treasons, murders, rapines, burnings, spoils, desolations, damages, and mischiefs to the nation, acted and committed in the said wars or occasioned thereby. Charles refused to enter a plea, staunchly arguing the court was illegal and that the king was responsible only to God. After three days, Charles was removed from the court chamber and witnesses were heard against him in his absence. The king was declared guilty and sentenced to death on January 27th. All 67 commissioners present agreed to the ruling, and 59 would later sign Charles's death warrant. The real G's. Over the next three days, Charles disposed of what few possessions he had left, burned his private correspondences, and was allowed to say farewell to two of his children, Elizabeth and Henry. At 2 p.m. on January 30th, Charles was led to a black scaffold erected outside the banqueting house at Whitehall. He chose to wear two shirts that day so that no one would see him shiver in the cold and mistake it for cowardice, always conscious of his body and how it was perceived. He gave a speech no one could hear but was recorded by his confidant, the Bishop of London, who accompanied him. He declared his innocence and maintained he had always been a good man, a good king, and a good Christian, and that he had truly desired the liberty and freedom of the people of England. The bishop replied he was now exchanging his temporal crown for an eternal one a good exchange. The king laid down on the chopping block and with one clean swing of the axe from an anonymous executioner, off with his head. In 1957, the German historian Ernst Kantarowicz published a book about medieval political theory called The King's Two Bodies. The title referred to the mystical connection between the physical body of the monarch in feudal European society and the larger body politic he represented. In a single stroke, the leaders of Parliament and the New Model Army had severed both of the king's heads from both of his bodies. They had destroyed the person and the office that embodied their national project. Of all the mayhem and disruption that the crisis of the 17th century had wrought on the continent, no other single act represented a greater breach with established reality. Against the public and private will of all the actors involved, the necessities and vagaries of the moment had pushed them towards an act of catastrophic rupture. A spell, one that had bound the people of England for centuries and a common political understanding, had been broken. It was now the task of the merchants, ministers, and warlords responsible to conjure a new one. Hell on Earth is written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It's produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer, Nick Quaz. Show art and animation from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chapotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by Alessandro Takeshi, Blackout Princess, Austin Riley, Tyrant King, Frederick Scarfone, John Ahrens, and Wagner Koop. Join us next week for the end of our narrative as Cromwell and the parliamentarians attempt to forge a new political reality from the one they had destroyed, and England eventually brings about a new god to rule the world. <laughs>